Religion ranks right up there with politics, sex, and money as a subject that is mostly off-limits in the workplace, whether it's obviously part of someone's identity or completely invisible to others. Our spiritual beliefs inform everything from what we wear and eat, what holidays we do or don't celebrate, what we name our children, and in how we live our lives in general. With it being so pervasive, it's not reasonable to try to ignore it just because we're uncomfortable with the topic. Our question this episode, how can we bring deeper understanding and respect for a wide range of faith-based beliefs and practices in our workplaces? Welcome to episode 38 of How Can I Say This, where we look to build connection and community through courageous conversations. I'm your host, Beth Bilo. Thank you so much for joining me today. My guests today are Zahabia Ahmed Usmani and Kyle Coyers, and we're going to talk about how to create a culture that is interfaith friendly. And a quick note, when we say interfaith, we don't just mean people who belong to a traditional religion. We're also including atheists, secular humanists, and those who may not fit into what most of us consider to be a quote-unquote religion. Interfaith considers the spectrum, so yes, it's about religion, and it goes way beyond religion in its inclusivity. Our purpose today is not to differentiate between religion, spirituality, and faith, but I wanted to offer up that context in case you are someone who doesn't identify with a specific religion. This conversation is for you, too. And because there's a lot to cover, we're going to get straight to that conversation. Stick with me afterwards for a few closing thoughts and your call to action. Zahabia Ahmed Usmani is a program coordinator for the Kaufman Interfaith Institute, which is a program of Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She also serves on the board of directors of the Lakeshore Ethnic Diversity Alliance, based in Holland, Michigan. Kyle Coyers is a program manager for the Kaufman Faith Institute, and he's also a candidate for ordination in the Presbyterian Church USA. If you want to learn more about the work that Zahabia and Kyle do through the Kaufman Interfaith Institute, you'll find more information as well as links to resources that we mentioned in the episode at howcanisaythis.com. From there, you can also access past episodes, submit a communication question for a reply in a future episode, subscribe, learn how to leave a review, and offer feedback. Hi, Sahabia and Kyle. Welcome to How Can I Say This? I have been looking forward to our conversation, so welcome. Thank you. Well, you know, this is a topic that hasn't come up yet on the podcast, and I am so pleased that you're both here to talk about this, because it's a tricky one, or it can be. And that is religion and um, interfaith and our personal faith. And it's often a topic that seems to be generally off limits, um, particularly in the American workplace. And yet, for many people, it's an integral part of their identity. So for some people, that means that it's inevitable that at some point, it will come up to be a point of discussion. And if the culture is not supportive of that or isn't used to that, it can be a challenge. So what advice do you have for someone who wants to make, uh, this is the best way I could put it, so um, please, you know, finesse this if you like, but someone who has a faith-based request or accommodation in an environment that would otherwise not discuss the topic? Hmm. So as you mentioned, Beth, I think it's important that especially for folks who are working in the for-profit sector or any organization, to realize 
that your religious, spiritual, or secular identity is just as valid an aspect of your identity as is your race or gender identity or nationality or sexuality, whatever sense you want to take on that. You know, the way we orient around the world is so very much informed by our religious, spiritual, or secular perspectives. To give yourself the grace of validating, like, this is an important thing for you, an important consideration for your employer and workplace to take seriously. So the first one starts, I think, with ourselves, giving ourselves permission to allow it to be the big deal or the significant thing that it is. Mm -hmm. I think also as a person who is of a minority religious tradition in America, I've found that it feels like you're asking for too much when you want to share about your religious beliefs and customs and traditions. Mm -hmm. But I think that you have to at least open the door to that conversation and sometimes it even requires um, letting people know how they can be supportive of you. For instance, as a Muslim, our day of worship is Friday in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. So if you work a traditional work day, you would miss your weekly service if you did not have an accommodation. And some people are okay with that. And some people are very much not okay with that. Actually, men are like, if they're practicing, would want to miss more than two in a row. So, you know, there's just pieces like that where in order to practice your faith fully and authentically, you need to ask sometimes for uh, flexibility. Yeah, yeah. And to remember that um, you're not asking, how do I work less or how do I right. do less work? You're asking, how can I do my work better? Right. Um, at the end of the day, that's sort of how this question is framed. Right. Yeah, it seems like you would um, need to come into the conversation perhaps with, uh, as they do in selling, sort of ready for the objection. And that doesn't mean that person is going to necessarily push back, but to think, put yourself in your employer's shoes and to say, um, well, what are they going to be concerned about? They might be concerned that I'm not putting in as much time. So how can I address that? as I make this request? I think the like first thing, first and foremost, like employers recognizing religious identity or secular identity as a part of someone's identity, Mm -hmm. um, as their employees' identities is a great place to start, you know, and all everything in between, just knowing that people are bringing that with them into that space and we need to be conscious of that is a great place to start. But I also think, too, realizing that, you know, for folks that work in human resources, a large part of their work is making sure that employees are cared for well so that they can do the best possible work for the organization. Mm -hmm. And so while perhaps some folks may feel uh, awkward or uncomfortable talking to their direct supervisor, Mm -hmm. uh, again, this is why a human resource office exists. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're absolutely right, Beth. There are some instances Uh, especially in the world of for-profit, where these considerations just haven't been given much thought, Mm -hmm. right? It's an area of of inclusion or identity that, especially, as you said, in our American context, gets swept under the table as one of the several things that you just don't talk about in polite company. But it's worse than that because it's not just that you don't talk about it, but you assume that everyone is what is believed to be the majority, the norm. Yes. Which is of Christian leaning and mm-hmm. therefore there's Christian privilege that comes into play in a workplace and in, in our society in general, right? Right. Um, so I think that's really important for employers to even recognize that everything in our system is set up to play into a privileged sort of process. 
Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I want to follow up by asking a question about workplace culture and how can it be developed to be more inclusive naturally, as opposed to you know it feeling like an awkward conversation. Um, but before I get to that, you you brought up something important, and that is you're including secular in this, and what you just said, Zahabia, about the Christian privilege absolutely affects those of Jewish, Muslim, as well as secular faiths. <laughs> you know, if, if I put the word faith with secular, mm-hmm. because it is a belief orientation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so for the secular person, I'm not sure what my question is, but I'm just noting um, that sometimes when we think about this conversation, we're only thinking of religion in the traditional sense, and we forget mm-hmm. that those who do not practice any particular religion also are sometimes faced with these conundrums because of that Christian-centric assumption um, and privilege. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the, the speedball phrase that we like to use in the work is sacred or significant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are choices again that we make in terms of how we interact with the world that are informed by our belief system or our worldview. That informs how we hold things sacred or significant. Yeah. And so you can have somebody who does not ascribe to religion at all, right? They are secular, but they care very much for the environment and care for the earth. That impacts the things that they would look for and mm-hmm. say, a workplace cafeteria if they choose to be vegetarian or vegan, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That desire is just as valid as somebody who's looking to keep kosher or keep halal. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just like the mindset of calling into question your behaviors and the behaviors that impact policies and practices, you know, going back to the HR piece that Kyle mentioned. Yeah. I think that being cognizant of the fact that, oh, I guess I never realized starting a city council meeting with a prayer <laughs> might not be perfect. Right. I mean, like, you know, I mean, I think there's just like so many levels in which you see this happening mm-hmm. and where you can still honor if a person wants to say a prayer without imposing it on everyone else, or if someone wants to meditate or if someone wants to silently reflect, you can just have a moment of silence mm-hmm. in place of that. So there's very easy substitutes and easy changes that we can make that still give people space to be authentically and truly who they are and honor everyone sitting at the table or sitting in the room or at an organization. And again, what Zahavia was just noting, it's easier to run from it then, right? So we don't want to have a Christian prayer at the beginning of the city council meeting, so let's just not have a prayer. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But then you sweep that piece of identity under the rug. So, you know, what would it look like to open that space up to folks from uh, the Hindu or Buddhist community who might want to offer a meditation or yeah. somebody from the Muslim community or Jewish community who might want to offer a prayer or recitation, or perhaps, again, somebody from the secular community who'd like to read a section of something that they really found inspiring that week, mm-hmm. right? Where, again, you are representing the entirety of the community in that city council space, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You're being authentically the reflection of the people that actually live among us as our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I see this in um, in rotary meetings all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and other, I've been to different clubs, and sometimes they are 
inclusive in that way. You know, one week it'll be a rabbi, the next week a priest, the next week, you know, it's something completely significant, <laughs> someone mm-hmm. who is honoring what's significant to them. Mm-hmm. And other times, and I cringe at this, even as a Christian, it's about, you know, in Jesus' name. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that is always very uncomfortable for me mm-hmm. because of the things mm-hmm. that you're, you're talking about. And mm-hmm. one of the follow-up questions I have is then, in the case of a rotary meeting, for instance, you know, there's there's probably some influence that one can exert and there's less risk in bringing that up to, say, the club leadership and saying, hey, you know, we ought to acknowledge that there are multiple faiths represented here. Is there any way we could do this? It might be easier and less risky to do that there than it would be in the workplace. So I'm wondering, it seems like part of this is a process of discerning when can I make accommodations myself? Like, when can I do those adaptations, you know, instead of participating in the prayer, I do a moment of silence, versus when do I speak up and say something? Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. How do you discern whether you just kind of do your own thing and not say anything, or that it needs to be called attention to? Mm-hmm. I think you always frame it so in cases where you might be asked to offer that invocation piece or be a part of a planning committee for some community gathering space or event, right? You always frame it as an opportunity. And so again, I'll bring it back. I know you asked about Rotary, but into the world of business, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like you're going to be able to serve and therefore garner the benefits of a diverse and broader clientele Yeah. if you're employees reflect that clientele. And that only happens if your employees feel validated in their identities in your workspace. And so there is the opportunity tied to the bottom line, not to say that everything goes back to that, um, but in terms of a language that's convincing for folks, Mm -hmm. there is opportunity to be found in taking these really small steps to make sure that folks are represented. Mm It's going to take baby steps for sure. I think it's not always something that'll change overnight. Um, Unfortunately, people don't have epiphanies that lead to overnight inclusion. Right. (laughs) That would be so much easier. It would. (laughs) Um, I mean, it really unfortunately requires uh, kind of constantly kind of planting those seeds, trudging away. I know sometimes for me, it just starts with sharing what I did that weekend or Mm. what's happening that month. We just ended the month of Ramadan. And so it's like, oh, this is what our family does and um, using social media and providing, you know, um, there's always work friends and folks that are in contact with you in social media. And so you're able to sort of share a little bit more about who you are personally and even in those spaces. Um, But then I think it's also, I mean, sometimes it's both. Like sometimes you notice your friend who is secular, who cringes, at, in Jesus' name, we pray. And then you can say, you know, have you ever considered that to HR, to other folks that can impact uh, changes and say, like, you know, have you ever considered that that might not be incredibly inclusive language? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially for our allies to step up, who do, in Jesus' name, pray, <laughs> um, to step up and say, you know, as someone who identifies with this prayer, I do notice that there are people that maybe don't feel as comfortable participating in it. And that is like something that all diversity inclusion work needs is we need folks to step up and to speak and to share the weight of this work together. Um, So that would be some of my suggestions on how to do it. And, you know, there's kind of like two buzzwords in the, in the realm of equity work, specifically as a term as it pertains to racial equity, but I think Mm -hmm. it works here too. 
You know, there's a difference between being somebody's ally, which mm-hmm. is saying to somebody, oh, I'm sorry, it must be really awkward for you that we have a Christmas party and you don't actually have a religious holiday in the month of December, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Versus being an accomplice, which is sort of the new term of saying, you know, I'm going to be the one out of my privileged identity to join with you in these disruptive things. And that's, I don't use disruptive in a bad way, right? Right, right. Disruptive almost as it's used in the stock market is sort of, again, this opportunity to do something mm-hmm. really unique and innovative to kind of say, and again, Beth, you and I as Christians, especially here in our West Michigan context, to be a privileged voice advocating for folks who aren't represented in a lot of the spaces that we're in. Mm -hmm. You know, you ask the minority communities, again, in whatever realm of of identity that might be, to fight for themselves. A change just isn't going to happen that way. That's unfair. It's already a community that feels very unseen, attacked, marginalized, whatever it might be. Um, undervalued. And so I think it, it does have to fall to us to also take the responsibility to stand in the gap and say, no, hey, it's great that we do this. And this is a wonderful tradition, but man, wouldn't it be great if our workplace also honored these other folks who are mm-hmm. doing incredible work here? Yeah. yeah. So that makes me, that makes me want to say amen. But then I'm like, okay, so, so that's like, you know, that's, that's almost an example of like a spontaneous response that comes from a particular frame that is not shared by everyone. And it's not that everything is going to be shared by everyone, but right. it's, but we don't think about it. So, so I think Zahabia, you know, what is your equivalent? Like if you listened to him and you said, that's spot on, um, is there an equivalent expression um, or is that a silly question? No, I think that in this work, we have to give each other grace. Um, yeah. We were just doing last weekend, a, a training for interfaith camp counselors. And I kept saying, God forbid, because I, we were talking about worst case scenarios and I, mm-hmm. Every time I did it, I thought to myself, there could be people here who are secular, who aren't thinking God forbid, but I feel like I hope they're giving me grace and they're understanding that it's my way of of expressing. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes down to like power dynamics as well. Um, If I'm more on the same power level as them, and it's sort of just me expressing myself Mm -hmm. rather than me being in charge and saying this is how we do things, you know, kind of thing. So I don't know. I think that I wouldn't be offended if someone said amen, but I'm also (laughs) a person who believes in God. So I don't know. I guess that would be a question for someone who is secular or humanist identity or an atheist or an agnostic. But um, to me, I think that it's like, I think it's okay. Yeah. I mean, one of the big things that's in our space is we try and cultivate a culture of what we call oops and ouch. Oops, ouch. Yeah. Simply to say, you know, at any point you have the ability to say, ouch, you know what you said there? Like that doesn't, that doesn't authentically represent me or mm-hmm. it doesn't, you know, the assumption that that's in there is actually kind of hurtful or mm-hmm. not, not necessarily true to what I mm-hmm. believe or what my tradition says or whatever yeah. practices. Um, and then, you know, conversely, you have the ability to say, oops, yes. you know, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's an opportunity for learning. I really love that rule because it um, implies and honors the learning that we're all in. Mm -hmm. We're all in a process of learning, um, whether you're a person who constantly is doing interfaith work or you're a person who's muted or you're any diversity and inclusion work. I mean, this is like, I mean, Kyle just um, told me about the the new, what was it, ally and Accomplice. 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 And I didn't even know about that. So, I mean, we're always learning, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and developing. And I mean, I've been on a board of a diversity inclusion organization. And when we looked at the calendar and we were trying to figure out what to call 
Christmas break and adamantly the everyone on the board said it should be called Christmas break because that was what it was mm. and I thought wow and I I felt very silenced in that moment and here we are diversity and inclusion organization yeah. and so I feel like sometimes it takes time sometimes it takes baby steps and you do need to have everybody be willing to acknowledge like we're all learning and how to be open to that learning when you're not ready for it and to be extra open when those opportunities arise, just plant those seeds. So that that Christmas break is a great example. How far do you go, like you personally, Zahabia, in that kind of discussion, um, if that's what they settled on, where do you personally decide, I'm not going to fight this battle anymore? In in that moment, I didn't. And I mean, I also had um, one of my kids' teachers kept referring to it as a Christmas party for a party they were having before their winter break. And I repeatedly pointed out to her that we don't celebrate Christmas and it would be more inclusive if she called it a holiday party. And like now that my younger daughter has her, she's finally starting to inconsistently change her language. Mm. I mean, and I think it's hard, right? You're unlearning. It'd be like if someone told me to stop saying God forbid in this situation. Yes. Um, It would take time and practice for me to unlearn that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so you have to give people grace and you have to understand it being called Christmas break does not directly impact me. Mm -hmm. The other thing too that that the holiday party doesn't actually solve the problem. Yeah, right. In fact, it might actually get worse, right? Mm -hmm. Because the assumption of folks who want to call it a holiday party is that every religious tradition then has a holiday that is probably similar to Christmas in the month of December. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. Even for the Jewish community, a lot of people associate Hanukkah with Christmas mm-hmm. as the Jewish Christmas, and it is not that. Right, right. It is not that at all. In fact, it's not in the top tier of major Jewish holidays mm-hmm. uh, from a, a spiritual perspective. Uh, it's become that sort of culturally, mm-hmm. but I don't think there's anything wrong with having a Christmas party, but are you also going to have a party for Eid or for Holy or for Diwali or for uh, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're recognizing everybody's seasons when they come into the life of your workplace, and again, you are celebrating this, Mm -hmm. um, which creates awareness. And I mean, who doesn't like office parties, right? Right. Like, so more of those. I think that's actually healthier than trying to distill everything into what is still a very Christian-centric mode of thinking through mm-hmm. holidays. Mm-hmm. And let me just tell you the way people can do it. That is just so beautiful and kind. And sometimes I get like awestricken by how people have been so conscious of me. Um, leave, living in Zealand, my older daughter was in dance through the rec program. And um, when it was time to do the holiday party, recognizing that my daughter was part of the program, the instructor asked that none of the plates or any of it be religiously themed. Mm-hmm. They said, just go with like winter stuff yeah. and, and just keep it simple and keep it wintry. And it was like, it was so wonderful. And I like, I hadn't said anything, but they just recognized that we have somebody in our program and this would just honor all of us and, and include all of us if we did it this way. So it's just that mindfulness piece. If you're mindful of, of who you have in your organization. Um, and I think it's also goes to the root of like, not just being completely private and being open enough to know who's in your organization and be in relationship with the people in your organization and them to feel cared for 
and valued, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And it strikes me that it's important that leaders and accomplices make it safe mm-hmm. or create that safe space for that to happen. Because I, I really, I, I didn't know about that word accomplices either. I knew that allies was mm-hmm. kind of uh, on the, on its way out somehow, mm-hmm. <laughs> but didn't know what had taken its place or what was more appropriate. So it seems like there is a level of responsibility on the leaders and the accomplices to create a safe culture Mm -hmm. for people to share. Yes, this is what I did this weekend or last night or no, I'm fasting now because it's Ramadan, you know, um, that they can that people can share those parts of themselves without fear of at the worst retaliation of some kind, you know, or bullying in the worst case scenarios. So just in closing, what would you say is kind of bottom line advice for those who want to contribute to that safe space and just get it started, you know, like those first baby steps? Sure. So the first thing that I'll say, Beth, is very rarely is there something that is authentically a safe space, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Especially when you are talking about aspects of a person's identity that have historically been marginalized or oppressed or been the recipients of really just horrific violence, right? Mm -hmm. When you bring people together whose worldviews, whose lived experiences of even the same neighborhood are vastly different, it is very hard to ever guarantee that that space is safe, Mm -hmm. right? So when we do interfaith dialogue, we like to say this is a healthy space for learning. It's a brave space that we enter into because we realize that we are going to face moments of challenge, right? Mm -hmm. There will be instances where there is dissonance between what I experience as a white male living in West Michigan and what Zahavi experiences as a Pakistani Muslim living in West Michigan, right? Right, right. But we enter into that bravely. And so, again, I think having a, a culture and an environment that has thought through that complexity and set down some guidelines around how that happens. And so when we pull college students together or high schoolers together or adults together, you know, we have developed some sort of community agreement around how we're going to frame our learning from one another. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that a lot of folks who are listening might say, well, I don't, I'm not necessarily in these formal spaces or you know, I, I just sort of have these off-the-cuff conversations with people about mm-hmm. their spirituality or their beliefs or, you know, their secular identities and my own. Right. I will simply say that there is power in your lived experience and story. Mm-hmm. Nobody can refute that, right. right? Yeah. And while it would be very easy to argue technical points of theology or belief or mm-hmm. what scriptures we subscribe to mm-hmm. or even whether or not white privilege is a thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is great, but right? <laughs> yeah. But again, for, for persons of privilege like myself to simply say, this is the disparity that I have observed, that mm-hmm. I have learned, that I have experienced, that exists between my process of going to shop at the store or my lived experience of driving along this stretch of road through this nice part of town, Versus my dear friend whose experiences are very different in the store mm-hmm. or driving through that very nice area of town, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Those stories, your stories have weight and power mm-hmm. to really develop empathy mm-hmm. between you and somebody who is very different or sees the world in a different way. Yeah. My thing would be that organizations or neighbors or whoever 
should not be afraid of the conversation. We need to take conversations around diversity, inclusion, interfaith um, out of this taboo realm. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if people come into it with good intentions and openness to let ourselves share who we are and not be afraid that you are going to make mistakes. You are sometimes going to say the wrong thing or understand something the wrong way because we are, you know, by nature of being human, we are likely to try to stick something somebody's saying into a framework that already exists in our brain. You know, it's just kind of how we try to understand information and process things. And sometimes there are things that are just not like that at all (laughs) and really require a lot of stretching and growing to understand. And so, like, I think that, like, you have to give yourself grace and you have to give other people grace and you have to be willing to try. Like, if you don't try, nothing will happen. Like, nothing will happen. Everything will stay the same. And you'll just, like, like Kyle said, sweep it under the rug and pretend we're all good. So I think that's what I would encourage people to do. Yeah, it's like that. uh, It's that great. James Baldwin quote, right? Nothing, yeah. not everything that is faced will be changed, but um, nothing will be changed unless it is faced. Exactly. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for this very rich conversation. Um, I hope that we can continue it at some point because even as we're talking, more questions are popping up. <laughs> and, um, and I'm, and I'm so glad that you both joined me and, and thanks for having this really open and honest conversation and allowing me to fumble around sometimes. I think that we need to get used to and get over, you know, kind of get over ourselves mm-hmm. when we're talking about these kinds of topics because we're not always going to have the right words. We're not always going to find the right way to do it. And that's why I love this oops and ouch. Mm-hmm. That's a really brilliant takeaway that I'm going to try to absorb. And uh, and I so appreciate you taking the time to share with us. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Beth. We enjoyed it. There were two points that were shared in this conversation that will stick with me for a while. One is the permission to offer an oops-ouch response when we say or do something that might be considered off-putting, inappropriate, or even offensive to someone else. If your heart is in the right place, which I suspect with 99% of us, it is, then if you make an honest mistake, an honest oops or ouch reply will go a long way in building and maintaining trust with others. This particular point reminds me of one of my favorite golden rules from Dale Carnegie and his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. His third principle is this, if you're wrong, admit it quickly and emphatically. In other words, don't try to double down on your original remark. Don't start making excuses or deny that you said whatever it is that you said. Simply say, oh, I was wrong when I said that, or I made a mistake. If it's appropriate to apologize, do so. If you feel you need to explain why you said what you said, try to do so without sounding defensive. Just take responsibility, quickly and emphatically, for the ouch or oops. Apologize if you need to, and move on. If the situation calls for it, you could ask the other person to correct your mistake or to give you more information that will help you avoid a similar awkward situation in the future. You can use it as an opportunity to open up a dialogue. One of the best examples I've seen of this in action was a few years ago when Amy Robach, who at the time was a news anchor on ABC's Good Morning America, made an on-air gaffe. USA Today wrote this about the incident. 
During a segment on diversity in Hollywood, Robach, who has been substituting for Robin Roberts, noted recent criticism for casting white actors quote in what one might assume should be a role reserved for colored people unquote. After the broadcast, Robach released a statement explaining that she had meant to say "people of color." She called the incident a mistake and, quote, not at all a reflection of how I feel or speak in my everyday life. The USA Today article then went on to quote a professor who provided context for how the term had once been acceptable but was no longer in use. She also offered clarification on when to use the term "people of color" versus African Americans. As someone who can feel flustered when confronted with the decision of how to describe people when race is important to mention, I personally was grateful that Robach's mistake led to additional information being shared instead of just the typical public shaming that usually happens. And because Robach came out right away with an apology and a simple explanation, it was a very minor. And temporary ding to her reputation. She's now a co-anchor of the news program 2020, and a quick Google search of her name doesn't show any evidence that the incident ever happened. You have to search for it specifically. There's not even a controversy section in her Wikipedia entry. And I think that's remarkable, given that so many celebrities and public figures have had their careers derailed, sometimes just temporarily, sometimes permanently, for similar mistakes that they did not handle as gracefully as she did. She made an oops and ouch, admitted it quickly and emphatically, and everyone learned something and moved on. The second point I appreciated from this conversation was the introduction of the accomplice concept. We put so much burden on the people who are on the receiving end of discrimination or insensitive behavior to speak up and defend themselves, and some are willing and able to do so. But not everyone is comfortable doing that, or they may refrain from doing so because it's not safe, or they don't have the opportunity, or any other number of reasons. For anyone who finds themselves to be the person of privilege in a situation, it's good to be aware of any opportunity to act as an accomplice for the marginalized individual. And in my mind, being an accomplice doesn't mean you're rescuing them or trying to be the hero. You are not saying to them, "You're helpless and need me to fix things for you." Assuming that posture would be almost worse and more offensive than not doing anything. To be an accomplice, in my mind, means that you speak up if you see an injustice, and you do what you can to create a brave space where that person can be seen, heard, and treated as an equal. This is using your privilege for good to model how people should be treated, and that would be my call to action: be alert for opportunities to be an accomplice to anyone that you see being marginalized, whether that's because of their faith, the color of their skin, their age, or their socioeconomic status. At the very least, model for others how to treat that person with dignity and respect by giving them space to speak up. Contribute their gifts and express their humanity. 
Oftentimes, this modeling might take the form of being a good listener, showing genuine curiosity, specifically inviting that person to engage with the group, or simply remembering to take into consideration different perspectives and beliefs when you are planning an event, project, or gathering. Take it upon yourself to be the one who is aware of how people of different faiths or races might respond to an idea or a change in the workplace. You don't have to be an expert and have all the right answers. Just be willing to put on your diversity hat, to notice where you might be coming from a majority or privileged position, and to ask questions with the intention of creating inclusion and an atmosphere that is respectful of all people. I hope to have more conversations like this in the future. This topic is one I've been wanting to talk about ever since I launched this podcast, and I am so glad and grateful that Sahabia and Kyle were willing to have a wide-ranging conversation about it. I hope you agree when I say that I'm really looking forward to having them back for more learning together. This is Beth Bilo, and you've been listening to How Can I Say This? Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thank you so much for joining me, Zahabia, and Kyle today, and I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously. Courageously.